What do you know about Jesus? Were you raised in church but know there's more to the story than the words on the page? Was his name forbidden in your home and no one ever explained why? My name is Miri Nadler and I'm curious about everything, especially the first century. Join me as we read through the Gospel of Matthew chapter by chapter and discuss the cultural, historical, and archaeological discoveries that will satiate our curiosity for who Jesus really is, what he really taught, and why those things changed the world as we know it. Welcome to Jesus Curious. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Jesus Curious, where we get to actually dive into the text. I have my good friend here, Rabbi Joshua Brumbach. Joshua, I've known you for ever. Uh, I don't time. know, decades. Yeah. I think I met you. I think I met you in Portland um, at some kind of messianic conference, but. Yeah, I don't even remember when the first time was. Actually, it's just been that long. Yeah. Um, Needless yeah. to say, it's been a very, very long time through a lot of transitions. I've known you when you were single. I knew you when you got married and had your first kid, and now you have two. Yeah, yeah. And um, you are the rabbi of, what's the name of your congregation again? It's called Simchat Yisrael in West Haven, Connecticut. Wow, you're in Connecticut now. I know this it's wild. <laughs> UCLA guy. And you used to go around um, to Israelis, I remember saying that you went to Ukla, which was, I always thought, very, very sweet. Um, I have a little bit of a cough. My kid gave me a very fine present of a cold this week. So excuse me if I, I don't know. It's probably COVID. Who knows? Who knows? For, I mean, nowadays, for, who knows? But, you know, you're probably... You know, hopefully you'll be fine. <laughs> the truth is I've never tested positive for COVID, but I definitely had Delta where I didn't smell or taste anything like old school kind. Uh -huh. um, and then the rest is like, I had a cold and a cough. Boy. Was it COVID? Maybe, probably. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know if you tested or not, but it's, uh, yeah. I mean, at this point, most people have, probably had it by now in, in one version or another. Yeah. So, um, and I think that we need to discuss something that is, I don't know, this might be a little bit controversial, but your wife, Monique, I think definitely has probably the best hair in the Messianic movement. <laughs> She's definitely one of them. I'll give you that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that so so Josh's wife is an attorney. She's the executive director of a Jewish organization. She is very like she's a, super intelligent, you know, she can speak on a number of issues regarding politics, a Torah, whatever. But I think that if she were to give like a five minute TED talk on any subject and could just go off, it would be curly hair care. 
Oh, she's huge on that too. She's, you know, got a number of converts that she's, you know, won <laughs> over to, you know, because one of her biggest things is like she sees people who have curly hair and they don't, you know, they don't know how to take care of it or whatever. And she's like, ah, I can't deal with this. I need to, I need to talk to you and, and tell you how to take care of your hair. Um, yeah, I mean, that was definitely one of the things that attracted me to her was I've always loved you know, really curly hair, and so anyway. Yeah, she's the curly hair care evangelist. <laughs> she is totally, totally. Right. So, so she's just she's phenomenal. Just, I mean, you really married up. I think that we would both agree. But yeah, yeah I've known absolutely. you for a long time, and it's great to see you. And I haven't met your your younger one. How old is he? He's so both of our sons were born in August. So. Our oldest is going to be 10, and, and the youngest, Solomon, is going to be 2. 2? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to warn you that... that so 2 child. is that age where he's, like, super cute, but also such a handful. <laughs> it's that second child, because your first child, I remember, is so... Was so just, like, you know, just so sweet. And, like, he's such... very chill. Yeah. Such a good boy. Yeah. It's that second one. You gotta it's watch out more. <laughs> it's that second one, like my sec, like my first one. Like he's probably gonna have a documentary about him, about like how like the guy that you never knew, and it's my job as a parent to make sure that it's like that you never knew did the good thing, instead of <laughs> did the bad thing. Whereas like my second child is definitely gonna be famous, and my job as a parent is to make sure that he's famous for a good. The, the right reasons right the right yeah. reasons and not the wrong reasons right. like he is like king david like definitely like emotional pours out his heart to god will kill his ten thousands um impulsive af so <laughs> yeah it's tough especially with second you know it's pretty common for second born children to test the boundaries a lot and everything and I think it's one of the benefits we have especially with with Gilad our, our oldest one is uh, there because there's eight years between them is mm -hmm. he's not really threatened by the younger one yeah. even though even though there was a time in when she asked you know why does why does the younger one get all the attention it's because he really needs it you know it's the only <laughs> way we can keep him alive is if we give him attention so um, yeah, no, I, I totally get it. It's, it's interesting. And you don't know this until you have more than one kid is not only does it really create a whole new set of challenges, but uh, how different your kids are and just yes. the relationship that you have with them. Um, I have a, a very special relationship with our oldest one. And I think I'm, I'm going to have a similar kind of relationship with the second is just I think it's going to be different because you can see already right. just how different their personalities are. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> cool. So next we're going to go into our segment that I like. I don't have a name for it yet. Maybe you can help me on this. But I like to call this like Israel is like I was going to call it like Israel man because I wanted like Florida man because I wanted to find like the craziest stories I could, but mm -hmm. like I need to find that publication first. So, um, because 
these publications take themselves way too seriously. But there was this interesting article about how Sfat has turned into Israel's Disneyland. Disneyland? Really? Huh? Yes, because... Um, so Sfat is this place in Israel. It's in the north. And um, it is where the Nanaks go for spiritual enlightenment. Now, the the acolytes or the disciples of Rabbi Nachman, what do they call, what are they called? The breast uh, lovers. The breast lovers, yeah. that's right. Yeah. So they all go to this mountain town that takes, like, that you're going to, um, you're going to kill your car getting up this hill. Have you been there? Yeah, yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's fun. It's this amazing wild place, yeah. It's a silly place. It's like I don't know if I call it silly. It's just it's definitely it's an artsy. It's it's like a lot of little towns in even the U.S. where it's artsy, funky, weird, sort of new agey <laughs> in in it's ways. Like, I would say like it's an art. So I would say like if you go to a coastal town in the U.S. or maybe like a mountain town in the U.S. like maybe Cambria in California or mm -hmm. even maybe like in Asheville in North yeah. Carolina it's witchy but yeah, it's not witchy, witchy because it's Jewish yeah it's there's a town in Oregon called Ashland which mm -hmm. is it's where the the Northwest Shakespeare Festival is and it's this mm -hmm. wonderful cute little town but it's just wild. You're gonna meet people dressed like biblical characters, and you know people who are, you know, just smoking weed out on the the, the corner, and and uh, you know it's funky. It's got great little bookstores, um, but it's funky, right? You know, it's, it's right. But it's also little art shops and stuff. Um, it's just got a weird, funky, wild vibe. But I think I I feel like. Um, Sfat is the Israeli version of that. And part of it is because, you know, as you know, there's this rich history going back to the Middle Ages. I mean, it's an even older city than that. But during the Middle Ages, it really became a hotbed for Jewish mysticism and like very right. mystical kind of approach. And so it still has that vibe, like you were talking about the Breslover Hasidim who go there and all different kinds of Hasidim because it has this whole history. It's this funky, wild you know, experience. So explain to our audience what Hasidism is. So Hasidism in a, in a nutshell is during the 1700s, there was uh, a, a spiritual guru guy, the Baal Shem Tov, um, Rabbi Israel, Ben Eliezer, but people call them the Baal Shem Tov. It's his title. It's a, it's a mystical title. And his followers eventually were called Hasidim, these pious individuals. And it was an approach, it was a revival movement within Judaism that was very, very different from sort of the approach at the time, which was more common, was a very rational approach to, to, um, to Judaism, to uh, a very rigorous study of religious texts, the Bible and religious texts. And the um, for people who know what I'm talking about, I sort of jokingly explained that the Hasidim are like the charismatic, you know, um, 
approach in Judaism of it's very much about singing and dancing and approaching God through emotion and that um, it, what matters more is the sense of the joy and the connection that you feel to God rather than how much you know per se and so it's very much this um, mystical um, emotional sort of approach to God obviously like with all movements it becomes more <laughs> more you know uh, like everything else the the longer it's been around but in the beginning, it was a real kind of awakening or revival movement within Judaism, so much so that the establishment very much fought against it. And the different approaches are still known as the opponents to the, mm-hmm. you know, the Hasidim call other people mitnagdim or misnagdim, as they say. And uh, they're the, technically it means the opponents, right? They're people who are opposed to their, their form of Judaism. So... So real talk, when you get closer, when you're driving to Sfat mm-hmm. in Israel, you'll see graffiti mm-hmm. all over. And it just says like, nah, 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 Yeah, so it says that all over. And if you don't read Hebrew, then you wouldn't know what it says. But there's just like, they're called nanachs. They're like, they're, they are... Uh, acolytes of Rabbi Nachman, which is a chassid, and um, they wear kippot with like little little balls on it, right? Mm-hmm. They're like antenna. <laughs> they're like they're antenna. Like, they're like beanies, kind of. Yeah. Yes, but what's crazy, and I didn't realize this till I was there, that the women—it's a style. It's not like a spiritual thing. It's a style. The closer you get, the women wear the most colorful huge turbans on their heads hmm. that yeah, are yeah. like massive they're like three times the size of their head and i don't know how like what they stuff in there or how heavy it is <laughs> yeah, but either. it's beyond mm-hmm. and there's no parking it's almost impossible to find parking there's also a lot of they there's a, a military base up there you're gonna kill your car getting up there and um but there's a lot of art and everything like that but apparently it's become um this uh massive tourist destination um for a lot of people that um a lot of jewish uh tourists that go to israel and um they like it because it's not being toured by non-jewish tourists so if you are a non-jewish person listening to this podcast I recommend if you go to Israel, please go visit Sfat. It will be like an out-of-body experience. It'll be mm-hmm. something that is going to be something that you won't see anywhere else in the land. Um, so that is like mwah, chef's kiss. You've got to go see it um, if you can find parking. Um, right. But they'll, they'll have like good vegan food and stuff like that too. It's super hippy-dippy. All right. So let's talk about Matthew 1. And I specifically wanted you on this um, podcast because I know that I at least have heard you talk about this before. And um, before we talk about this, um, there is something that we, that in the Messianic movement is referred to as anti-missionaries. Before we talk about anti-missionaries, I guess the place to start is like, what are Jewish missionaries? And um, something that people might be familiar with, might not be familiar with, is there is an organization, 
uh, that was started in the 70s. My family, my in-laws were part of it called Jews for Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, Very clever name. And it started out of the Jews, it started out of the Jesus movement in the 70s, which a lot of different movements started out of. It was very evangelistic. Um, Like a lot of movements, uh, they were required to read Solinsky's Rules for Radicals. Um, They would do provocative things like protest, um, just innocuous Broadway shows, you know, just to basically get their name in the paper or to get some attention. Um, And they would be very abrupt and deliberate and in people's face. This organization organization still exists today. It does not do the same things. I'm not very aware of what it takes part in, and my family is no longer associated. But um, it definitely made waves for sure for sure in the 70s and 80s, and a lot of Jewish people did come to faith through these organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, when they did come to faith. They, uh, in Jesus or Yeshua, they were usually sent to a church. Um, Several people did become what we would call like Messianic Jews and started Messianic congregations out of this, Um, chose to live within a Jewish identity as believers in Jesus or Yeshua. Um, But this became certainly an issue for the Jewish community. Am I, what what say you, Joshua? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, the idea of Jewish missions of really, the way that it started in the, in the, especially in the 1800s, where all the major denominations at the time, which were all mainline denominations, you know, Anglican, Lutheran, had these big efforts at converting Jews to Christianity. Um, and in the American context, there were also these Jewish missions, including the American Board of Missions to the Jews, which became Chosen People Ministries. And Chosen People Ministries and Jews for Jesus kind of are um, branches out of, one is a continuation of, but Jews for Jesus was a branch off of the American Board of Missions to the Jews. And over time, the, things have changed as Jews there's always been Jews throughout history that have believed that Yeshua, that's his Hebrew name, as uh, as we know, like Jesus's real name wasn't Jesus, right? It was Yeshua, which is the Hebrew word for salvation. Um, that there have always been pockets of, I mean, we know that what we call Christianity today was a form of Judaism. And over time, as you know, these two communities branch away to where we have what today we think of as Judaism and Christianity, there have still been Jews that believed that Yeshua was the Messiah, but especially in the 1800s, with these efforts that greatly, you know, multiplied, and there were um, all over Europe, there were Jews who believed in, in Yeshua, and uh, so that also began to change the approach and the thinking and the way as, as Jews now who believe in Yeshua, like what does God expect of us? How does God expect us to live, right? Uh, But these efforts really sparked a response by the Jewish community. And although that there have always been these kind of responses to faith in Yeshua, um, really with the, especially with the sort of very 
countercultural approach of Jews for Jesus, at the time there emerged groups like Jews for Judaism and other responses to that, which we call anti-missionaries, right? There are missionaries and there are anti-missionaries. Um, and the anti-missionaries are, you know, pushing against faith in Yeshua, trying to keep Jews, um, what their view is like keeping Jews Jewish. Um, but, I mean, we would argue that in some ways, for, for those of us who have a, a particular approach, that we're trying to do the same thing. But that's the rule and the world of missionaries and anti-missionaries. It's this kind of cycle of that both need each other, right? <laughs> you know, right. you have to have the missionaries in order to have the anti-missionaries. I mean, you know, it's vice versa. They both feed off of each other and, you know, have very similar tactics. And they both, their messages are the same, right? One's trying to save the other from the other and, you know, so on and so forth. <laughs> right. And I remember um, when we were part of the same community, uh, one person in particular, he had, uh, he was a Jewish person, his family was uh, more or less not religious or very mildly religious. Uh, he had become a Christian through a church, had found, um, you know, a messianic congregation and, be, and became involved in that and became, you know, really interested in his faith in Yeshua or Jesus through his, through Judaism. And his family had no problem with his Christian faith, uh, but they really had an issue with him being coming messianic. And at that point, mm -hmm. they invited Jews for Judaism over to his house. And um, within just a few afternoons, and probably using this proof, this text, um, convinced him that Yeshua was not the Messiah, got him, you know, just like took him off into, you know, Aish or some kind of orga young uh, organization um, in Israel into a yeshiva and things happened after that mm -hmm. or gave a lot of names of people that were involved in the Messianic movement and such, um, which is not an uncommon thing. But right. it was so interesting that, you know, his family didn't really mind so much that he was a Christian. They're like, okay, you're just a Christian now, I guess. They, what they really minded was that he was believing in Jesus in the name of Judaism, um, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. maybe was a unique uh, situation because certainly there are other families that would have taken issue with just the whole faith in Yeshua mm -hmm. at all in any, in any circumstance. But we do tend to see the Jews for Judaism people at every um, Messianic Jewish conference. We people know their names, they know their kids, mm -hmm. <laughs> they their friends, um, and they just take turns arguing these texts over and over and over again. And it's actually like a very sweet thing to see. Um, it's almost like an iron sharpening iron. Mm -hmm. situation. So this is one of their favorite things to go over. So I have the NASB in front of me. That's one of my favorite texts to read. Which which mm -hmm. um which translation do you prefer? I it, it just depends, you know, my own personal. There's a version out there called the Complete Jewish Bible. And that's just the one that I I tend to use, but it just depends oh, on gee. what I'm doing. Yeah. OG, uh, OG version, Messianic version. Okay, so I'm going to read um, 
the first part of the text and um, starting in chapter one, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron, and Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nakshon, and Nakshon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab, Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, and Obed fathered Jesse, Jesse fathered David the king. So far, so good, right? Mm-hmm. And then next we go, and uh, we're just following up with verse 6. David fathered Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. So um, by her, the who had been the wife is not in the text. Um, so it would be David fathered Solomon by her of Uriah, by the woman of Uriah. Um, Solomon fathered Rehoboam, Rehoboam fathered Abijah, and Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat fathered Joram, and Joram fathered Uziah. Uziah fathered Jotham, Jotham fathered Ahaz, Ahaz fathered Hezekiah, Hezekiah fathered Manasseh, Manasseh fathered Amon, Amon fathered Josiah, Josiah fathered Jokaniah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So here is where we have a problem. Right in um, verse 8. And you actually could argue that there's, you know, there's lots to say even before we get to this point. But go ahead and make your point as, as far as this particular. So Joram is the, let's see. He is the great, great grandfather of Uzziah. Mm, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yes. So um, there are three generations missing between Joram and Uzziah. Mm -hmm. And um, those names are that we know in um, Chronicle, in First Chronicles, um, Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah. So why are those why 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 are those gone? So I mean the important part one of the important points is I don't I don't think you got to that verse yet where it talks about there were 14 generations from right, right. Abraham to right, and then 14 generations four, so there's a repetition of 14. And so and the reason for that is very intentional is that mm -hmm. 14 is so the Bible uses numerology a lot. Um, numbers are, are in numbers in the Bible. I know it's common nowadays for particularly Christians to read everything so super literally in the Bible um, because we have different concerns. We think we have the same concerns, but we don't. We're applying our modern worldviews onto the biblical text where the writers and the hearers of the biblical text thousands of years ago had different concerns, right? And what is happening here is that the, because numbers are usually symbolic, I'm not saying it's not true, but true can mean something different 
you know, depending on on the hearer. Um, but what is the concern of the author of Matthew, which by tradition we believe is the uh, the apostle Matthew, one of the disciples of Yeshua, Matthew, um, is that he's trying to build up the argument that Yeshua is a son of David, right? And so 14 is the number of of the name David. So if you take the Hebrew word Dalit, the, the letter Dalit, Vav Dalit, it adds up for 14. So all of that Gimel Dalit. So Dalit is four, and then um, plus five, four plus five plus four equals 14. And so this is what he's trying four. to do. Wait, is all of that Gimel Dalit? Yeah, four plus... Yeah. Six. Anyway, it should be 14. <laughs> so Dalit Vav Dalit is, is 14. And so there are 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. The only way that you can do that is, and the Bible, believe it or not, does this all the time, is you have to, in order to have these symbolic numbers, you have to leave people out, right? It's often, for example, in the New Testament, <clears throat> they'll talk about the 12 tribes, but then they'll mention the half-tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. And which are really two half tribes that make up the tribe of Joseph, but the New Testament never mentions Joseph. So it always wants to use Ephraim and Manasseh for specific reasons. But in order to do that, you have to leave out a tribe. If you include two half tribes as tribes, that means you have to remove somebody. So the, the, there's so many places in the Bible where they're trying to do, use these numbers symbolically, right? And so that's what's going on here is that it, 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 the author knows that there are these additional generations, but they don't fit in what he's trying to do. And so that's why that they're, they're left out. Does right. that make sense? It's because it, they're symbolic numbers. In order to have an even 14, 14, 14, you have to exclude somebody. Absolutely. Now, um, so the, the thing is, is that between Joram and Uzziah, those three generations never reigned as well because he's doing the king. He's doing the royal lineage, correct? Mm -hmm. This this is what right. I've read before. So Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah were never on the throne, and are often left out of certain records of um, of generations because they were actually never on the throne. I don't know. That's just what I right. read. But. Yeah, I, I, it's something like that, right? I mean, the, again, that they're symbolic. They're choosing the main kings who reigned on the throne for a specific amount of time. Right. The big so, names. <laughs> so I think that what um, Matthew is doing is, like, really provocative here. So first of all, he's, like, he's just kind of smacking people in the face, like, right off the gate because the Hebrew scriptures – and with Second Chronicles, which we know is um, mainly genealogies of people who, you know, this person begat this person and this person begat this person. So he's literally saying, and then this is, this is Yeshua. This is, you know, the most important person. Mm -hmm. But also um, he is, we're, we're, in my last episode, I discussed these 400 years of silence, right? How they weren't so silent. How the in you know just 167 years prior, 
the Judeans had seen God perform this huge miracle of just this family and guerrilla warfare uh, beating off this huge Greek army um, and essentially taking over their own land. And even though that they were technically under Greek rule, um, they just ruled themselves under the Hasmonean dynasty. Mm-hmm. And now because Israel is such a money pot because uh, it is the center of travel. So they're, so the Romans are just making money hands over fist with anybody who's crossing over through Israel to get from north to south or east to west. They're also making money off of the salt from the Dead Sea. And then they're making money off of the taxes of the citizens. The people are feeling more and more um, confined and oppressed. And it's a tinderbox and, and you light a match, it's right. going to blow up. And um, so this is the perfect time. So, you know, all the Judeans are looking up and like, God, this is the perfect time to send that Mashiach you've been talking about. Right. Um, that's just like the Maccabees that's going to, you know, come out and reign and rule, just like King David, the son of David. And, um, and I feel like, you know, Matthew's like, let me get this out of the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, so you have to, it, it's really helpful to look at sort of the literary, also mm-hmm. not just what is happening here, but sort of the literary methods that are happening here. Because mm-hmm. what Matthew is doing is he's setting up his story to be a continuation of the biblical story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so every time what people don't realize especially and you see this really vividly when you read through the torah through the first five books of the bible is that um genealogy service bookends right so you'll have a genealogy which sets up a story it's supposed to sort of be the backdrop for the story right but then what it does is when you reach the end of a major narrative you have another genealogy and then you have you know another major narrative and then a genealogy so they're bookends they separate major and so what's happening here is with the genealogy, the reason why Matthew immediately, boom, he starts off with the genealogy, which in our minds seems like boring and like mm-hmm. really just a list of names, is he's setting up the um, that there's a break in the story, right? And that now there's an, a, a continuation narrative of the biblical story. He's also using it in order to establish the sort of the bona fides of... Mm-hmm of the Davidic line of of Yeshua, but also to kind of place him within a, a more broader context. In a tribal world, in a tribal land, you know, people's, which family you come from is very important. Certainly. And so that's what he's doing in this world. It's like there's multiple reasons for this. And then there's also then the symbolic nature of it. it's not just I'm establishing a genealogy, but it's a symbolic genealogy. I don't mean symbolic in the sense of fake, but symbolic in the sense of like the 14, 14, 14, because that has the, the numerology of the name of David, right? And so there are different, there are multiple things going on with this genealogy, which are actually pretty cool. Like, so even though we mm-hmm. know of these people and we know, uh, you know, the big names, um, there's there's an intention here of the author in his approach to the to the text and setting up the story for its listeners. It's really important, again, that we remember whenever we're talking about the Bible and especially the New Testament, we're not talking about readers. We're talking about listeners. 
very few people could read. And often what would happen is even mm. those who could read still didn't have a scroll, right? That these letters, especially in the New Testament, were sent. And so they would have been read out to congregations. So what we lose, what's literally lost in translation, because most of these things um, in the New Testament were written either in Greek um, or the most reliable manuscripts we have of them were are in Greek. But they have all these aural, you know, A-U-R-A-L, uh, meant to hear. They have all these cues for the listener. And so this is part of the, it. in the Western, um, especially American context, we have a structure for storytelling, once upon a time, right? And, you know, a narrative Sorry, arc of the right. way that a Western story has to go. This is the once upon a time for ancient Jewish listeners, you know, in, in the world, and especially those familiar with the, with the Hebrew Bible. That makes so much sense because they would have, especially when we're, so we're talking about like the three missing generations between Joram and Uzziah, they would have probably had memorized the kings of Judah anyway. Yeah, possibly. Right, right. You know what I mean? Right. Joram, Uzziah, you know, it, it, this would have made perfect sense for them to not have those three generations in there anyway. This would well, not have, and it's this also would've... like a puzzle. Like, well, well, wait, you didn't mention them, right? So why, mm -hmm. right? And right. then, but also the sense of, and a lot of times people wouldn't have quite picked up on this unless you heard it a few times or unless you were familiar with what the author is trying to do. Um, so it's just interesting. There's all these little nuances. Like you mentioned the idea of Easter eggs, right? Like these little mm -hmm. surprises that you get the more that you delve into it, that the, that the author is intentionally doing um, you know, we believe through some level of inspiration, but there's still a, a careful crafting, if you will, of the intention of the author in setting up the story. I tell you, the more I read Matthew, the more I'm like, this guy is such a nerd. <laughs> he is. Um, and there's so much, I mean, all the, all the books are very intentionally written with very intentional messages, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the entire Bible is like this. Words, even though we think that there's so much redundancy and stuff like that, in the ancient world where you couldn't just type and then, oh, I don't like that, delete, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> writing is an effort. Uh, it takes a lot of work to put things in writing. And, and so things are always intentional. And I think you have to realize that and like, oh, you know, words aren't wasted because they can't just like, you know, it's right. You have to be very intentionally in the way that you craft and, and construct things and and to think about what they're trying to do. And and more um, the really important thing that we have to think about when we're thinking about the Bible is that it's it's a primary concern is telling a theological narrative. Right. Um, and again, not that these things are not real, but their intention is to not, you know, they're not writing historiography, right? That's a modern conception of historiography. They're writing to tell a message. It's a, it's a story. And I don't mean story in the sense of fake. I mean story of like there's a message. There's a narrative arc here. In the same right. way, for example, you know, I realize your listeners are going to come from all over the world, but just from the American context, like we have our own origin stories, right? And we have stories that um, we tell that every, you know, well, it used to be that every kid had heard a story about George Washington in a cherry tree and cherry stuff like tree, this. Right. Now, historiographers will say that that pro story probably didn't actually literally happen, 
but you can't take that away from the story of George Washington. You know what I mean? Like it becomes right. part of the collective story that we tell um, with its moral messages and stuff like that. And that's kind of what's going on in the biblical text. Not that these things are not real, but there's an intentional storytelling with messages and references. You know, it's like Yeshua's parables. Yeshua teaches, Jesus teaches all the time in parables. It's, it doesn't matter whether there was literally a farmer <laughs> or that had, right. you know, or, you know, a person who buried three coins or whatever. The parables, it, it, the message is what's important, not the literalness of, of the sure. message itself. Like Washington and the cherry tree. The, it's right. not that there was a cherry tree and he chopped it down. And he said, I can't not tell a lie. The message is in America, we value truth. Right. Exactly. There's a moral mm -hmm. message that is intended to be passed down. Correct. Very good. So let's talk about, so there are some women mentioned in this genealogy. Mm -hmm. um, the first I see is Tamar. I'm not going to go into who they are because I feel like not everybody is on the same level of like um, biblical understanding of who they might mm -hmm. be. Um, but there's uh, Tamar, there's Rahab, Ruth. Ruth. The wife of Uriah, which I thought right. was like Bath really Bathsheba, right? Which Bath is right, Bathsheba, yeah. And then, um, and then that's it. Yeah, there's and, four and then, four women that are mentioned there, in the genealogy. Yeah. There, there's uh, Mary, of course. But um, so I've seen like different like Christian studies on this. You know, it's like okay, well, you know, Rahab was a prostitute, and Ruth was a Gentile, and um, you know, Bathsheba was this woman that David committed adultery with, and these women were tainted and all of this stuff. But actually, as somebody who lives a more Jewish life, I look at these women, and I, my immediate thought is Eshet Chayil, like these are all women of valor. Right. Um, so uh, these are women that are like to be praised, as in Proverbs 31. What I find very, very interesting so um, in Jewish life, a uh, man uh, sings Proverbs 31 over his wife, which is a good wife who can find her worth is far beyond rubies. And it talks about all these things she did, like she considers a field and buys it. And she's like merchant ships. I, who knows yeah, what right, it right. all means? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, all of these things. But um, it's about how great she is. And she's like a very fantastic businesswoman. And... Um, you know, and she's just superwoman. Even if she does not do all those things, he sings it as if she has accomplished all of it. Mm -hmm. um, and, but what's so funny is that Batsheva is not mentioned by name. She's mentioned as the wife of Uriah, who right. David, um, who as in modern day, we would say David raped, um, impregnated, murdered her husband yeah and then mm -hmm. married right and um but who i read um many believe solomon wrote proverbs 31 about hmm. which um that she was just a very fine woman but he wrote proverbs 31 about Bathsheba, which mm -hmm. i thought was really beautiful um so uh I, th I think it's kind of interesting that, um, you know, it's funny in Christian traditions, they take all these women and they see their flaws first. 
But to a Jewish ear, if you hear all these names, especially like Tamar, who really just stands up for herself. And uh, I, I'm, I feel like this is for like a different part of the podcast when I go back to the, like talking about Old Testament or something. But um, Tamar is a really cool lady that does some really cool stuff. And she stands up for herself. And if you ever do a study on her, do it. Um, like these are really strong ladies that take a stand and they do the right thing and we are to be like them and that's why they're mm -hmm. mentioned not because of their flaws but because of their strengths and I mean, everybody um, has flaws right right so yeah i mean it's it's not helpful to focus on people's flaws but like you said from a jewish perspective these really are women of valor that despite mm -hmm. their circumstances they end up overcoming their circumstances and really become people who um, become exemplars, right? And each one of these women in Jewish tradition um, has a special place because of where they ended up, right? It's not where they started, it's where they end up right. um, with, with Tamar. Like, and again, the Bible and especially God praises her for what she does. That's what happens with each one of these, Rachav. She's not an Israelite, right? But through the siege that will then take place over Jericho, she she decides she wants to to be on the side of the God of Israel, right? And so ends up being absorbed into the people of Israel. And same with Ruth. Ruth is a Moabite. She's not an Israelite. She's brought into uh, the people. And I'd have to go back and look at Bathsheba, but I I don't think she's an Israelite either. Like so, these are women oh, really? too that were not Israelites. I mean. Uriah is a Hittite. He's not an Israelite. Um, and so I'm not sure if his wife, I'd have to go back and look. It's one of those things I've just never looked at. To, but mm. now that we're talking about it, it'd be interesting to go back and look at her um, genealogy. But either way, the, these were women who were not on the inside, right? That they were considered right. on, in some sense on the outside of, of communal life and, and kind of the centrality of, of Israelite um, focus and end up becoming a primary focus, you know, like Bathsheba becomes the wife of the, of the king. She's a, a queen of, of Israel and plays a significant role. I, I'm sorry, of, uh, of King David, but then she's the mother of Solomon, who is then the next, you know, king of his, Israel. So she ends up a very significant role. Um, despite her, the circumstances, right? Despite the mm -hmm. fact that she kind of was just taken by by David without uh, you know without some sense of consent or whatever like and uh, you know but despite their circumstances they do these great things um, and and they're exemplars to you know especially within Jewish tradition yes I agree very good okay cool so now we move on to the next part which is the conception and birth of Jesus and um, here we get into something that I am just like, I have a bone to pick about this. Just, uh, <laughs> so, mm, all right, so I'm gonna read it. Uh, verses 18 through 24. Now the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, since he was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had thought this over, 
Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. Behold, the virgin will conceive and will give birth to a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. Okay. So, Mary and Joseph are betrothed. Um, would you mind explaining the difference between, like, the contractual, um, uh, what, what it meant to be betrothed in first century Judea versus married? Right. So, again, we have to go back to thinking tribally um, and kind of with our more of like our anthropological nerdy sort of hats and and think about the idea that in a system where arranged marriages are are happen is that once an agreement is entered into that the two individuals are going to marry then they are there are certain legal um ramifications to that and according to that idea, the only way then to break it off, even though there are certain things they're not al allowed to do yet, they're not cohabitating together and stuff like that, um, or living together in the same home, but they're, but they're now betrothed. It's a, actually, they're entering into a legal, um, a, a new legal phase in, in the relationship, and the only way to break it off is actually through a get, a written writ of divorce. Um, but there's So would a, a ketubah have been signed at this point? Not a ketubah, but there would have been some kind of an agreement, an exchange of things of value. And whether or not they used, in, in modern, more modern times, there's something called a tenayim, which is a written agreement that is entered in at the engagement. Um, and that's where they, you know, the, the mothers will break a plate after signing this thing, and there's a, 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 an actual... Um, you know, kind of a, a technical process of engagement. And at that time, I don't know what the actual practices were specifically, but there was some kind of a formal agreement with an exchange of value between the family. So they have now entered into a, a contractual agreement, right? And so um, in many ways, I know that Joseph kind of gets a bad rap here. Like, I actually think he's acting very honorably here. Like, if I got word, I mean, you have to think about it from Joseph's perspective. If you just got word that, like, this woman that you're betrothed to and you're about to get married is, like, pregnant and it's by the Holy Spirit, it's like, yeah, right. I've heard that one before, right? You know, it's like, oh, yeah, you're betrothed. But rather than making a big deal out of it, because he could have made a big legal issue out of this and, and hauled her in front of the, the elders of the of the town or whatever, it says he's just going to kind of send her away quietly. He's going to write her a writ of divorce and just let her move on with her life with this new guy, right? Um, and the only way that that changes, and again, he's not chastised in the story for this, is that an angel comes and basically says, hey, dude, like, I, 
I'm serious. Like this is this is really my kid, right? And God's kind of sending a message to the angel that you are still supposed to marry her and you're supposed to treat this child as your own and she has not been unfaithful to you, right? That this is, you know, but we have to think about that this is kind of a little scandalous what's going on here. This idea that a, a woman who's not married is now pregnant and it's supposed to be by the Holy Spirit. Like, you know, think about what the town folk think. Um, this is kind of very scandalous because even though he ends up marrying her, the whole town knows that she was pregnant before they were married. This is, it's uh, an interesting thing. And even though the legi- yeah. we would consider it not illegitimate in the sense of because she was ended up being impregnated by the Holy Spirit from the world in which they live at the time, this was controversial. So I, ha- I have a few I read a few things on this. Yeah, 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 yeah. So number one, I read that when the betrothal happens, when the engagement happens, there's this small dowry that's given. Right, some kind of an exchange of things of of value. Right, and that is usually used for Joseph to go and make their home. Mm Mm-hmm. And, like, get that ready. Right. And, um, And so if... He cuts off the the marriage. If he, like, you know, cancels the marriage without fault, he gives the dowry back. If it's with fault, he keeps the dowry. No, I think it's, uh, right, with fault on the, the bride's side. Right. Right. Yes. Right. And so if he chooses to keep the dowry, then her father can challenge it. Because she's he's you know, saying that, you know, she's been unfaithful. Mm-hmm. And he could, he, this, oh, this is where it gets like, she's like 12, okay? Mary's yeah, 12, like. 14, 15, something like that. Yeah. yeah. She's very young. So his, so she's got to go to her father and say, I swear, this is not like I'm pregnant, but for real. And then her father um, says, okay, well, we'll get you checked by the priests or something. Yeah, so the or priests, someone, right, yeah. <laughs> priests have their own midwives who basically, and you can check to see, make sure like her hymen is intact, which it would mm-hmm. have been, I guess. And so I read this and it's almost like the angel saying, Joseph, uh, her hymen's gonna be intact and you're gonna be responsible to pay that dowry back. And you're going to be shamed. I don't know. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I There's a part of me that's like, what does divorce her quietly mean? You know, because... It's in the best interest of both families to not make this an issue, right? Right. Because, I mean, you have to think about in the, especially the Arab-speaking world, and even, you know, further to the East, where honor, family honor is a big deal, and the... You know, even the concept of whether we agree with this is not the point. The point mm-hmm. is in these like tribal societies, a, a woman who became pregnant um, before marriage or even divorcees, like they're pariahs and it's really mm-hmm. hard to get them married, right? So it's in the best interest of both families to kind of not make this an issue and not make yeah. this bring this into the public sphere and duke it out 
right? It's kind of like, let's just deal with this because we can make up a story of why she was pregnant and she doesn't have a husband. Maybe he died, whatever. Like, we'll get her remarried some other way. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. I think that there's, we're kind of speculating and I realize that on some of these details, but I think we what we need to understand is from the details that we do have, this was an issue, right? Sure. This was an issue for the families. This was an issue for Joseph, so much so that it required divine intervention, an totally. angel to come to Joseph. And again, I don't think Joseph is being dishonorable. Again, like what would we do in our circumstances? Like, it's true. You know, I'm, I'm engaged to somebody and she comes to me and, and like I'm pregnant and I know it's not mine. I'd be pissed, like, right, you know, and, <laughs> and I, you know, and no story of like, I was impregnated by the Holy Spirit, I'm going to be buying into, right? You know, like yeah. none of us, if you were put in the same scenario, are going to believe that, you know, like your wife was impregnated by the Holy Spirit. Really, it's going to be divine intervention that is going to convince you otherwise. That's true. Yeah, no, Joseph's a good guy, obviously. I mean, God chose him to be like the father of the Messiah, so I'm not gonna hold it against him. An okay dude, <laughs> but like he better have been like she, God put Mary through so much. Like Joseph mm-hmm. better have been singing the Eshet Chayil every single freaking week. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because that 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 Mary, and you know what? Um, so last week, because we've been going to this um, Assemblies of God Church. And the pastor brought up something like really cool last week. He said, you know, we don't have a lot of um, examples of mothers, like caring mothers in the Bible, which is so true, except hmm. for Mary, hmm. who, who just really showed loving care to her, her, her babe, you know, and um, like that's our, our real example of how to be a, a nurturing, loving mother. And, and through I mean, it all, the interesting thing is I think we actually have way more examples of the, in the, especially the Hebrew Bible of good mothers. What we don't have is any good fathers. Hmm. Joseph might be the only example in the entire Bible of a positive role model. Well, of course, like, I mean, my, my first thought goes to like Rebecca, who's like, hey, um, Jacob, like put on the, you know, let's trick your dad into giving you this birthright. Like, you know what I mean? Like, right. just um, no, but as far as know, a mother, the, though, she was very, you know, anyway, it's yeah, anyway, it's, just like this, like really heart, you know, right. Well, yeah, you really like, have it. I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, Mary is a fascinating character. I mean, I think she if really you really is. give her credit, and not just like because she was, you know, the the mother of Yeshua, but um, the way that she's praised. I mean, there's this whole the Magnificat, right? The this prayer that Mary gives, and the way that she's referred to. I mean, yeah. I mean, they're both, I think, very upstanding figures and righteous in their own in their own right, and which is why they're chosen to be the the parents. So he thought, so the, the angel of the Lord comes um, and he tells them that you're going to name the baby Yeshua. Right. Now, I do have a question about that. So Yeshua, we know just from Hebrew means salvation. Um, but I've also read that Yeshua was Aramaic for Yehoshua. So they share the same root, right? So the, right. the same root, whether it's in Aramaic or in Hebrew. So for those who don't know, Aramaic is a similar language. They come from the same language family. So uh, 
and they share the same generally that generally there's similar roots that are shared so yesha which is the root for redemption or salvation is the same for yehoshua or for yeshua one is a noun they're both proper nouns in the sense of names but one is causative like that there's something that is the salvation is done from somebody else and the other one is the word for salvation um, so in Joshua's name, they share the root of redeem or to save, but in Joshua's, a con- um, I'm not a linguist. I mean, in the sense of like, I don't know what you would call this, but, but it is your name. Your name is like Joshua. Two words, two words smashed together to form a new word. So Joshua is Yah, which is God and Hosea to save, like God is the one who saves. So God is the one doing the salvation in the name of Joshua, whereas Yeshua's name is the word for salvation, right? It's just simply that, and I think that that makes sense because the whole idea is if we're talking about Yeshua is the savior, then he needs to be the one doing the saving, right? Even though we know that God is the one ultimately who still does that, it's diff- It's a differentiation. Even though there's a similarity between the name Joshua and Yeshua, they're also different. So w- there's actually a priest even before the name of, you know, names are recycled in the ancient world all the time and we still do it, mm-hmm. right? You know, how many Jadens and Bradens and, you know what I mean? Like, do you know? It's the same in the ancient world. And so, but there was an earlier priest named Yeshua. We are, it's mm-hmm. actually one of the in one of the Haftarah portions. And so, um, so it was already a name going back for a long time. But they share a root. So it's Yeshua is not the same as Joshua, but they're similar in the sense of they they share the same root. Um, it's it's just really there's just it's grammar stuff. Also, the difference between the noun. Uh, or the verb to save in the sense of Yeshua is Yeshua's because it's a man's name is just in the masculine form rather than the feminine form. So when you see the name or not the name, but the word salvation throughout the Bible, it's still Yeshua, but it's in the feminine form rather than masculine form, which the only difference is a hey, but that's the hey isn't anyway, it's grammar nerd stuff. So, (laughs) so, um, I have a, just a, curious question that I didn't look up, but maybe you know. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can ponder it. So we know from Luke that um, when Zechariah uh, decide, you know, said that the name of his son would be named Yochanan or John, mm-hmm. people were like, why? Because your name is Zechariah. Right. Um, do you think there would have been an issue with Joseph naming his son Yeshua? Um, so, right. I mean, I, you'd have to ask somebody who's sort of a specialist in mm -hmm. some of these practices in, in, at the time in, in biblical times, I'm not sure what the practice was as far as naming. Um, because we do know, I mean, my just sort of, from what little I I'm familiar with, I don't think that people, I mean, you don't, people were not named after their fathers. They're named after somebody else. So in, in modern times, right. You know, one of the big differences they're different. So they're Jewish practice today depends on where your families came from, whether they're from Europe more recently. I mean, everybody goes back to ancient Israel, but more recently from Europe or more recently from, um, 
the North Africa, Middle East kind of a thing, Sephardic and, and um, Ashkenazi. Uh, and so Jews from European backgrounds do not name a child after a living relative, whereas Sephardic Jews do. So these are all different things that I don't know what the practices exactly were then. Um, but in both cases, they get their name from divine origins, I think. isn't? I think John is told, I, I could be wrong, but I think he's told what they're supposed to name the son, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because right. I think Zechariah writes it down. His name's to be Yochanan, right? Even mm -hmm. though it's like, whoa, but that, nobody in your family has this name. Um, and he's like, well, that's what the name is, right? And the same <laughs> right. with Yeshua. It's like, we're doing this because this is God. Well, the Holy Spirit told Miriam, told Mary, what Yeshua's name would be. Like, these are names that maybe weren't within their family necessarily immediately, but were, were kind of given to them by God. Right. That's very, very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> there's actually some interesting similarities between john and yeshua more than just they're related but just in their stories yes they kind of have yeah. these divine origin stories and stuff like this it's it's interesting even though the circumstances are different um you know elizabeth is not impregnated by the holy spirit per se but right. there's this whole story and back you know like divine kind of origin stories for both of these figures well, I mean, we don't have time to go into this, but I think in modern times, and especially by most followers of Yeshua today, like John is completely overlooked and skipped, and he's actually mm -hmm. one of the most important people. Um, if, if you understand the reason why he's set up the way that he is, his story, again, this divine origin story, that he's almost as important as Yeshua in, in, oh. the, teller, in the telling of the story. What's fascinating is that even Yeshua's birth, you know, we're talking about the birth narrative. The birth narrative is only in two of the accounts. Of the four gospels, mm -hmm. it's only in two. Which means that all four gospel writers didn't consider, the, all of them mentioned John. And my point is, John is more important to the telling of the overall story than even Yeshua's birth narrative. I absolutely agree. And it's because... Well, one thing that I've taught in Bible studies before is that at the time, John was more famous absolutely, in Judea than Yeshua was. Absolutely. Partly it's because he got his head cut off by Herod, but um, he, he, was, he was extremely well known among right. the people. Well, and his disciples hundreds. outlive him, right? You yeah. know, is that in the book of Acts, we read about an encounter with someone who was uh, said only knew of the immersion of John, right? He was a, mm -hmm. a follower of, of John the Immerser, of John the Baptist. And it was only later than they kind of filled him in on, well, let me tell you about the rest of the story <laughs> that right. came in from, from John's cuz from his cousin, uh, Yeshua. And so then he kind of gets the fuller picture. But at the time he only knew, he didn't know about Yeshua, he only knew about John. Right, yeah. And John's written more prolifically through by historians and of the time mm -hmm. and stuff like that as well. So yeah, I can't, I love getting into the chapters about John because he's actually just, he's just so much, he's so fascinating. He's just so, what is he? What is it, what is he? What, what, who is he? What's he talking about? Right. Um, okay, so I have some rapid fire questions for you. Okay. To end our uh, little session here. First one. 
What is your favorite book of the Bible? My favorite book of the Bible. Oh, it changes. Actually, it hasn't really. I always gravitate for the Tanakh, for the the Hebrew Bible. I would say the Book of Genesis, and there's all kinds of nerdy reasons why I really like the Book of Genesis. Um, and then for the New Testament, the Book of James. Okay. It's a very nice, good Jewish book. Okay. <laughs> Those are my favorite books. If you weren't a rabbi, if you were on a completely different path, like, what would you do? Um, I'd be like a professional mountain bike racer, probably. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I wasn't... Uh, I, I don't know, like, I, in addition to being a rabbi, I'm also a, um, an adjunct instructor at different colleges and universities, and sometimes I have those, like, I wish I would have done that instead, like, just taken more of the academic route, but, I don't, you know, I don't know, like, there are great things about being a rabbi, and there's cool things about doing other things, you know, but we all have those days that we wish we did something else, <laughs> so, who knows? Okay. If you could ask one person, not Yeshua, hmm. so one person from the Bible, one question, who is it and what would it be? That's a really great question. Uh, maybe Moses. And my question, oh, I don't know. I'd have like tons of questions. <laughs> That's a good, it's, a, I don't, uh, pass. <laughs> Or, like, can we come back to it? I have to think about... I've never thought about it. What would be the question that I would ask? Um, yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. But I think I'd like to have a conversation with Moses. Okay. And then finally, what are you eating in the world to come? What am I eating in the world to come? Yeah. Well, according to tradition, we are eating the flesh of Leviathan. So there's. Okay, a what does it taste like then? What does it taste like then? It's like chicken. <laughs> Just I, don't know. I don't know. I don't know, but that's supposedly what we're eating, according to okay, tradition. Okay, what do you want? What do you want it to? T okay, this is like what do you? What do like? I, oh, what, what do, do I want it to taste like? Um, I want it to taste like a really amazing steak. Okay. Like, like the most amazing steak you've ever had. That's what I want, Leviathan. How do you want it cooked? Like. Medium rare on the grill, uh, with certain some you know some. Uh, not too complicated ingredients, just salt, pepper, and maybe a little, uh, I don't know, not, you know, but something, it's gotta be, it's gotta be good. All right, very good. <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed our little study together. Hopefully we'll have you back for another chapter. And, Sounds great. Uh, talk about something else and thank you all for joining me for another episode of yeah Jesus thank you for having me mary it's been fun yeah it was so fun so next week we are going to be going over matthew 2 and we're going to be journeying a little bit over into egypt and talking about that you can contact me if you have any questions at jesus curious podcast at gmail.com we're on social media at jesus curious on tiktok and instagram you can subscribe on apple podcast stitcher spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts and be sure to leave a five star review tune in next week thanks so much 
Once I met a man who was murdered, raised on a stake like the snake, but in Jerusalem, and you could see the truth in him, and it shone like an innocent child, shone like an innocent child, yet grieved like a man with an adulterous wife, he stood in the midst of exile as the kind hand that extends to humanity from the depths of Hashem, the walking instructions of him. Of great Israel was born on Sukkot, grew strong in the instruction, healing in the junctions of darkness. Inspected four days and found no blemish. Four days and found no blemish. One day, wickedness hoped to save the rabbis. God has been willfully gave himself over as the ransom lamb of Passover to buy back Israel from the world's disorder. First fruit of the resurrection from the dead. Your love is deep. Tells a soul yet close.